0: Uh, we're so very happy to have Chris Kander here. She graduated from the Honors College, from Honors College at the University of Houston in the city where she was raised and still lives with her husband, daughter, and son. For seven years, she has been a writer in re- residence for writers in the schools there. She serves on the InPrint advisory board and stewards several little li- free libraries in her community. But right now we have her right here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Chris. Thank you all so much for coming. This is incredibly special to be here for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is some of my very oldest friends are here, and a great deal of the book is actually set in California, and so it's really special to be here and to share the book with you for that reason. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about the book. Um, I'm going to read a very brief section, but I also want to incorporate some of the music that is a a very important part of the book. And so I'm very lucky to have tonight a special guest um, who will play three pieces intermittently, and his name is Sergei Silvaski, and he's going to perform first, before I start talking, a piece by Gilka, and just to give a little introduction of the Russian flavor of the music that's in the book, and so if you would please welcome Sergei with. Thank you, Sergey. Sergey is a world-renowned pianist, and I'm very, very grateful that you are here tonight. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this piano in a minute, but first let me tell you a little bit about The Weight of a Piano. It's a novel that is really about, more than anything, <clears throat> the spaces in between the passions in our lives. It's about losses, and it's about love, and it's about the way that we find our way back to a sense of home. And it follows the lives of two very different women. Katya is a Soviet concert pianist, very accomplished, who receives, when she's just eight years old, uh, an upright Blutner piano from an old blind German that lives in the tenement house where she lives, where she grew up in Zagorsk, Russia. And this piano became her most prized possession. It's how she learned to express her identity. She taught herself how to play piano, and it was her life's passion to perform music. She went to the conservatory in Leningrad and insisted on taking this upright piano with her on the 800-kilometer journey there. And she married and had a child. And in the late 70s, when it was very difficult for Russian Jews to to live a free life, her husband decided that it was time to emigrate to the United States. And in the process, uh, Katya lost her beloved Blutner. 20 years later, in the United States, young Clara receives the same Blutner as a gift from her father just before her 12th birthday. And a week later, they die in a tragic accident. The piano was in a separate location um, at this time, and it became the only remaining surviving artifact from her childhood. And so when we meet Clara in the novel, she's 26 years old. She works as an auto mechanic in Bakersfield, California. And she's been carrying this Blutner around with her for 14 years. She can't play it, but neither can she part with it because of the symbolism, because of the, the emotional freight that it has. And the story of their lives begins to come together when Clara, after a, an accident, moving the Blutner into a new apartment, breaks her hand and realizes that it's time for her to part with it. For the first time, she's made this decision and then immediately regrets it. And the buyer, when he shows up, to take possession of this piano, um, Clara decides impulsively to follow him on this journey into Death Valley National Park, and thus begins this sort of revelatory experience where she learns the history of the piano and her unlikely connection to Katya. Um, and when I I got the idea for this novel, when I was talking to a, a book club group for one of my earlier books and I heard a woman say to her friend at the end of the discussion that she had finally found a way to get rid of this piano that her father had given her when she was a child. She couldn't play it and she had been carrying it around for 50 years and so she was she was so pleased that someone had finally she had found someone to, to take it. And the way that she said it there was so much emotion in her voice it was so equally divided between relief and regret that I immediately thought I was compelled to understand what it was like to be burdened with a physical possession that you didn't necessarily want. And so I decided then, in that moment, that I was going to explore it in the form of a novel. But an idea alone does not a novel make. And so I had to do a tremendous amount of research in order to tell this story, I'm not a musician. Um, my musical talent is, you know, extends only to turning on the radio and my ability to appreciate music. I'm not a Russian Jew. I am not an auto mechanic, although I am pretty good with my hands. And so I was able to or I was forced to um, start asking other people, to share their expertise with me. And and I knew right away that I wanted to find a piano for this book that was not common in the United States, but that was beloved by pianists in Russia and in Europe. And through a series of people, I was led to this amazing woman named Helga Kasimov, who, along with her uh, late husband, owns the oldest Blutner dealer in the United States. And it happens that Helga is here with us tonight. And I'm so grateful to her and to her family for the help that she gave me so early on in the research process of this book, because you really did give me my Blutner, the Blutner that exists in this book. I thought we were going to talk on the phone for 30 minutes or so, and we ended up talking for a couple of hours. And it was wonderful, because not only did she tell me about Blutner and why this piano is so special with its peerless golden tone and and the why it's beloved by so many amazing pianists around the world, but she talked about her own life and her husband's life. Um, and so it really helped me imagine my characters, and so I really am grateful to you. And I'm going to ask her a few questions at the end of our program tonight. Um, but I thought before I read a very short excerpt, I'd love to have Sergei come back up and play a piece that is really essential to this novel. It's a piece by Alexander Scriabin, a Russian composer. And again, I needed to find a piece that would sort of be the kind of um, auditory linchpin for these characters, something that was not necessarily recognizable the way that we might recognize Moonlight Sonata or another piece of, of music. And I found this piece to be incredibly expressive. Um, I'm talking about the prelude in E-flat minor. And so, Sergey, would you? Oh, not that one? <laughs> no. Please, no I, I play another piece by uh, okay. Another one? Okay, we'll take it with great passion. So it's going to be another piece, a surprise which I'm very grateful for. And this piece is uh, like a fire. It's like a, uh, Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Very similar in, in Emotion to the other Scriabin piece, I think. Yes, very expressive and it was perfect. Thank you. So the piano, um, you know, I told you about Clara and Katya and how their, their stories sort of unfold. But really, to me, the, the piano is equally a character in this novel. And by the end of the story, she, I think of her as a she, um, has become like a very old woman. Someone who has loved and given of herself her whole life. She's been played, she's been ignored, she's been stored, she's been sold, she's been loved and lost. And I feel as though she has absorbed all of the emotion that everyone who has expressed themselves through the action of her keys has ever given. And it's like this almost like a recording device that she's carried all of this weight and and by the end of her story feels almost as though um, she's got nothing left to give and I didn't write the opening scene until much later in the process of of the story because by that time I felt like I had really gotten to know these characters including the piano and I I loved this piano I still love this piano very much even though it's imaginary, and I'm not a musician. I feel a psychic connection. And so I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning of her life, and, and I decided to write about what it was like um, for her to be, become a piano from the very first moment that the piano maker, Julius Blutner, saw the wood that would become the soundboard for this particular piano. So this is the opening chapter, and it's very short, so it won't take me too long. Hidden in dense forests high in the Romanian mountains, where winters were especially cold and long, were spruce trees that would be made into pianos, exquisite instruments famous for the warmth of their tone and beloved by the likes of Schumann and Liszt. One man alone knew how to choose them. Once the leaves had fallen and snow blanketed the ground, Julius Blutner made the trip from Leipzig by train and walked through the forest alone. Because of the elevation and the brutal cold, trees there grew very slowly. They stood straight and thick against the elements, their grain dense with rosin. Blutner nodded to the young trees as he passed, occasionally brushing their bark in greeting. He sought the older ones, whose branches he couldn't reach, whose diameters were so great he couldn't see if a bear were standing behind the trunk. He knocked them with his walking stick and pressed his ear against them as his intuition dictated, listening for the music hidden inside. He heard it more clearly than any other piano maker, better even than Ignaz Bosendorfer and Carl Beckstein and Henry Steinway. When he found what he was listening for, he marked the tree with a scrap of red wool, which stood out bright against the snow. Then the lumberjacks he'd hired cut down the trees he'd chosen. Watching closely, Blutner could tell which were the finest specimens by how they fell. Only those with a minimum of seven annular rings per centimeter, all evenly spaced, would be carried out of the forest on sleds and then shipped back to Germany. The finest among these would become the soundboards that beat like hearts inside his famous pianos as protection against splitting the logs were kept wet until they reached the sawmill there they were quarter sawn to unlock the purest tones then sawn and planed into uniform planks the wood chips went into the furnaces to heat the mill and power the steam engines because of knots and other imperfections revealed in the cutting many of the precious tone wood planks also ended up in the furnaces but what was kept was nearly perfect. White in color, light and flexible, the faint traces of the rings densely spaced and running parallel across the faces of the soundboard planks. These raw boards would be stored for at least two years, covered and uncovered until their humidity dwindled to about 14%. When it was ready, the wood was transported by horse cart to the enormous Blutner factory in the western quarter of Leipzig and laid out on racks near the ceiling in hot rooms for many months but even then it wasn't ready to become an instrument. To ensure that the soundboard would someday conduct Blüttner's peerless golden tone, the wood had to dry out for another few years in the open air. It was with reverence then, in 1905, that an assistant, Clavier Baumeister, selected a number of those carefully seasoned planks and glued them edge to edge to form a single board. He cut it to the proper shape and planed it to the proper thickness, flexible enough to vibrate, but strong enough to push back against the pressure of more than 200 strings. Once crafted, it was returned to those warmer rooms to dry further before thin ribs could be applied to its underside, perpendicular to the grain lines. Then the soundboard took on a small amount of moisture, enough to allow its top to swell into a gentle curve, upon which the bass and treble bridges would sit, their downward pressure meeting the apex of the opposing curve as if around a great barrel. The Clavier Baumeister admired his work, the impeccably matched parallels of the grain, the precise curvature of the crown. This particular soundboard would provide the heart for the factory's 66,825th piano. The frame of the case was built by other craftsmen, its five back posts sturdy enough to bear the weight of the soundboard and the iron plate. The pin block was cut and fitted. The agraphs were seated into the plate at a height that would determine the speaking length of the strings, which were then strung. Tuning pins were hammered in, and the action set and fitted. Cold-pressed felt was layered thick onto the wooden hammers, thinning appropriately toward the delicate treble side. Dampers were installed next, along with the trapwork of pedals and levers, dowels and springs. The case was ebonized after the guts were in, requiring countless coats. The finisher's arm muscles bulged above their rolled-up shirt sleeves. Next, the instrument, nearly complete, was tuned. The tension of each of the 220 strings adjusted to the correct pitch. And it was regulated, the touch and responsiveness of the action attended to until the motion of the fingers on the keys would be properly transferred to the hammers that struck the strings. At last, after many years of effort by many expert hands, the piano was delivered to its final station for voicing. The Meister there lifted the linen blanket covering it and passed a hand over its shiny black top. Why should this piano be special? Each one was special, with its own soul and distinct personality. This one was substantial but unassuming, mysterious but sincere. He let the linen drop onto the factory floor. "'What will you say to this world?' he asked the instrument. He shaped the hammers one by one, listening to every string, shaving and minutely aerating the felt again and again. He was like a diagnostician, knocking the nerves below a patient's kneecap, measuring the response." The piano called out each time in compliant reply, Hello, hello. Furtick, he said when the work was done. He wiped the sweat off his forehead with his sleeve, pushed the wisps of white hair away from his face. Standing back from the piano, he regarded this complete and brand new entity that would be, after being played in properly, capable of incredible feats. The first few years were unpredictable, but over time it would open up and gather into itself a unique history. For now it was a perfect instrument, characterized only by its potential. The Meister fluffed his apron as he sat down on the barrel he'd borrowed for a seat, and flexing his fingers considered which piece he would christen the piano with. Schubert, his favorite composer. He would play the rondo of his penultimate sonata, the big A major. The opening melody was pretty, with a feeling of hopefulness and joy that preceded its more pensive, agitated development. This would be the perfect inauguration of the glistening black Blutner number 66825. "'Listen!' he called out, but nobody could hear him above the factory's ambient noise. "'Here she is born!' and he pressed his finger down on C-sharp, the first note of the rondo, listening hard, and it rang out to meet him with the innocence and power of a child's first cry. Finding it as pure as he'd hoped, he began to play the rest of the sonata. He would send off this shining new piano with as much optimism as he could gather, knowing it would no longer be his vestal once it was touched by its future owner's desperately human hands. Thank you. So as I said, I loved this piano, love this piano still. And I I feel as though it was because I developed such an affinity for her that I wanted to hear her express her own emotion, all of this emotion that she had gathered for all of these years. By the time we meet the piano, it's over 100 years old. And so I commissioned an original piece of music by a young composer named Connor Scott, uh, who lives in Atlanta. And I asked him to read several chapters, and I explained to him what I was hoping for, something that would express the life of this piano and the life of the woman who had loved it the most. And so he wrote a beautiful piece called Die Reise, which is German for the journey and represents the journey of the piano. And I'm going to ask Sergei if he'll perform that piece now for us. It appears at the end of the book in as a score so you Thank you, Sergey. That's beautiful. What a treat to hear that from you. Thank you. So I thought um, I would love to to talk with Helga, but maybe would you like to sit here? Um, we. I don't see too well, and I don't walk too well. Can we do? Can I take this? So maybe we could share the microphone. Maybe I could sit next to you. Could I sit next to you? Or that would be perfect. Thank you. So we'll t- we'll talk for a minute, and then I I'd love to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, but I would love to know from you, because I know that you had not ever had any writer ask you for help with research before, and so I'd love to maybe everyone would be interested in knowing what that experience was like for you. Yes.
1: Well, I admire you for all the research you have done. And maybe maybe a little 5% you heard from me during those two hours. (laughs) But uh, I had the experience. I I came here uh, to study American church history at the Lutheran seminary in Chicago. And I worked in a Lutheran church here for a year in Highland Park. I met my husband. He uh, was from Russian background. His parents were Russian, and during the Second World War he was in the camp for conscientious objectors in Glendora. And uh, it was not well known then that there were conscientious objectors COs then. And he went to the St. Gabriel Symphony to play clarinet for four years. And so uh, I married this musician who had become a piano tuner, uh, he wanted to have a piano store, so I wrote to Blüthner, a handwritten letter, in East Germany in Leipzig, and said we would like to represent them. And they were very happy because they said before the war they had a, a, a representative here in Los Angeles because so many Jewish exiles brought their Blüthners with them, and Austrians and. And later on, I found out through Dr. Alfred Sendry, one of the exiles who was an opera conductor at the Volksoper in Vienna and then also in Leipzig, became music director and was the first one to did broadcasting of a choir. And he started radio symphony orchestras in Leipzig, then in Berlin, then in in, uh, Paris, where he went first when they had to leave Germany. And so he told me that Blutner uh, contacted all their Jewish customers and uh, told them if they had to leave Germany and wanted to take their Blutner with them, they could help pick them up and pack them and ship them. And so I learned a lot of individual stories of how the pianos came here. Some only arrived after the Second World War because the Panama Canal was closed and there were stored in warehouses in the ABC Islands and elsewhere in the Caribbean. So, that would be a book. (laughs) 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 So, and then I learned, I went from church history to to piano history, and uh, they say about Germans, when you ask them a question, well, we used to say that that's a minister who starts with a creation every Sunday. <laughs> and somebody else said, when you ask a German a question, they put on a diving suit on and go way down to the bottom. <laughs> and I don't want to do this, but uh, we went to visit the Blutner factory. Uh, they remained in the hands of the family And we visited the Blutner factory 12 times and it sounded almost as if you had been there because the process you described was very (laughs) accurate. (laughs) And I learned a lot about piano building. And uh, so we have a store on Larchmont. We used to be in Pasadena. And most of our work is rentals for scoring, for film music, and then some concerts. The reason why the blutner is not well known because most, about 80, 90 per, 80% of all the teachers and university professors, they have a relationship to piano stores, I mean a salesman relationship. And so we only, we sold 26 two manual harpsichords, two manual harpsichords to universities and colleges and only four Blüthner pianos for that same reason but we keep on going, and this little piano here was made in 1970. The ivories on it were certified by the London, uh, London was a center of ivory cutting. You can make 60 ivories out of one, uh, I mean ivories for for keyboards, out of one tusk. And uh, so I learned about that too, but this is one of the, last ones with ivories and and, uh, this has everything original in it and when the New York City Opera came here, they were discontent with the upright pianos at the music center and since they used our harpsichords and our forte Mozart piano, they called and said, can you send us a piano tuner? We don't like their work on these pianos. So I offered this piano and they had it for 10 years in the pit for the Benjamin Britten operas, the Richard Strauss, the Korngold, and James Conlon had a for the Korngold, the Mahagoni, recently. So, and now it goes to Neil Diamond, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, when in a recording studio, uh, the singer, usually the singer, does not like the concert grand or whatever they have there, the engineer calls and asks, can you bring that over? It has." rubber wheels and we have a 1970 VW bus and, <laughs> and my youngest, it has two do- sliding doors. He loads it on and half an hour later they have a piano <coughs> and sometimes they say it doesn't need tuning because this holds the tuning very, very well. They are so well built. Now we inherited the guest book of the Blutner uh, uh, agency from the 30s. And there's Jerome Kern and Max Steiner and many of the greats and then the movie stars are in there. And there's Ray Bolger and he says, uh, the blutner made me cry, and I loved it.
0: <laughs>
1: and we had pianists, Russians, come to the store, and they play a blutner slowly and they let the sound come out. And they have tears in their eyes and because, and you express that in your book beautifully. Thank you very much. Thank you. our on next to
0: the That was, that's very special for me too. And a lot of authors do a lot of research, but this, um, getting to, to talk with you, having Sergei perform a blutner is incredibly special. He was
1: a professor in Kiev. He has a doctor. OK, <laughs> OK. I I
0: had a Blutner in Kiev for like 25 years. Did you? Yes, but I couldn't drink it in America because of rules of something. Which Katya has the similar problems in the novel. Yes. Grant, yes, yes, thank you. Um, does anybody have any questions? I talked it all out, didn't I? No, yes, no yes. The, the title is, um, is just so perfect, and I was wondering where in your process did that title jump out at you when you know it the right one? Great question, um, because unlike a lot of other writers, I always start with the title, and I never deviate from it. I don't have working titles. I have finished titles. Because to me, it sets the framework for the whole story. And so when I had this idea of this, you know, this freighted object, um, I thought, well, it's it's symbolic. And that's going to be the whole story. Um, and and I wanted it to be about the piano. But then I also wanted it to be about the emotional um, Re- reaction that not only Clara but then Katya on the other side, her opposing emotional response to the piano had. So it felt perfect in the beginning and it kind of stayed that way. So I'm glad you think it's just right. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. I took, good one. I took piano lessons. Um, I, did, I did try when I was 10 and I actually got a report card. I found it in my, my mom's pile of stuff from my childhood. And the piano instructor had written a very promising student on it. And I promptly quit and never tried again. <laughs> I think I'll stick with writing. But after listening to this, you know, I'm kind of inspired to try it again. <laughs> I'll be your next student. If I could be your next student, I would do it. <laughs> Yes. Um I do. I am like every writer that I know, I I approach it with a sense of discipline. And it's I was writing my first novel many years ago and was curious about what my average daily output was. And so about six months into the writing process, I simply calculated the number of days I had been working on it and the number of pages that I had written. And I came up with an average daily output of 0.87 pages per day. So. That sounds a little bit analytical and weird, and so am I. And that became my mantra. So every day I do 0.87 pages a day, which is very manageable because it's slightly less than a page. And I can always go over that, but I can never go under it. And I don't really have any sort of, you know, ritual. Um, I write whenever the kids are gone (laughs) and the house is quiet. And I like to be alone. I like for it to be quiet. And um, as much as music influences my work, and as much as it appears in all of my novels, I never listen to anything when I write. It's absolutely silent. So that's about that's about all the magic. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Yes, it, you know it's a it varies. I kind of it's very fluid. I tend not to go back and read. Um, what I had written before when I start another session. I kind of just, in my mind, pick up from wherever I left off. And if I ever get to a point where creatively I'm a little uncertain about where to go, that is a time when I might go back and look and see what I've already done and maybe take stock of it and make some certain refinements at that point. But I have... Um, For this book, I did several major rewrites, where after I finished a whole draft, I would go back and reassess, and I completely restructured it. For example, from the first draft to where it is now, it was originally structured in the shape of a keyboard, which sounds strange, but I had all of the Clara chapters representing white keys and all of the Katya chapters representing black keys, and so it was three octaves on a keyboard, but it really didn't work, and I was the only one that got it, <laughs> so I decided that I would let that go as much as I really liked it, and it was cool, and I gave equal um, page time to, to Katya, because as I got to know her and her story, and really the piano's backstory, it it was, you know, evident to me that she needed to have as much time on the page in the book, as Clara did. And so the resulting structure is kind of a binary um, chapter. Each each protagonist gets a chapter, and they alternate back and forth. But it, it's kind of a fluid process. And, um, and it, it takes me usually, I, my average is about four years start to finish, from the very first idea to when the manuscript is done. Good question. Only about less than two hours. Yeah. Because, you know, as much as I love writing, I've just, I've always been a mother and uh, i started writing my first novel when my second child was six months old. And so I, I never wrote novels when I had the time to devote to it. So I was always conditioned to do it in these little chunks of time. And, you know, they're getting older now. I have a 16 year old and a 13 year old and pretty soon I'm going to have an empty house and I'll have to kind of reimagine the way I approach work and I can't imagine spending more time than a couple of hours a day, but maybe I'll get there. It'd be kind of nice. <laughs> yes. Do you have ideas for future? I do. I'm halfway through my next book already. It's called Zephyr. And um, I it's it's I'll I'll just say this. It's about the wind. <laughs> yes. Um, besides novels, have you ever done any other types of writing? Good question. Yes, I actually have a children's book out, a picture book called The Word Burglar. And um along with some friends I kind of casually write screenplays. Nothing has ever developed into an actual film, but it's more for fun and for Practice and social interaction, and for many years, I I wrote for magazines. I for twenty years, I wrote for health and fitness and lifestyle magazines, and and published over five hundred articles. So I have I have some street cred. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, aside from that back research, I forgot that. It's really just work. I mean, it's just there's not any magical formula that I I can apply to it. It's agonizing and I have sometimes like crying jags and I have to, you know, really reevaluate everything and I'll call friends and complain and say I'm, you know, the worst writer ever and I have no ideas and I'm terrible. And I'll go for a walk. And usually after kind of getting it out of my system – something comes through some something if i'm just dedicated enough to the process and patient enough and willing to write through it some other idea will eventually show up but it's you know it's just the work it's just consistent butt in chair fingers on keyboard work yes uh, how did you uh, prepare for uh, music itself oh that's a great question given that I'm not a musician, I had to really rely upon the knowledge of others. And, and I'm fortunate to know many musicians and was able to you know call them. I talked to composers, professional pianists, um, tuners. I went to a Tuners Guild meeting, which was as about as riveting as you can imagine. <laughs> but I learned a lot. Um, I watched pianos being moved. I talked to so many people because I felt like I wanted to really understand if not how to play it, then how to, how to relate to a piano as an owner and as someone who cared for it. Music oh, the music itself. Okay, so the piece of music, well, I mean, as I said, I, I've always loved, I, I can appreciate music. Um, writing about it is, is difficult. And I would, you know, listen to pieces over and over again and really just try to understand the emotion behind a piece of music in order to express it. And I don't know if I got it right. I hope I, I hope it sounds authentic, but it was a true representation of how I reacted to a piece of music. And then I would give that reaction to a character. Um, but I tried to be as honest about, about the emotion, if not the technicality as I could. Oh that's also a great question. Um I mean I was exposed to so many more composers as as I was researching the music that I wanted to put into this book because I had to imagine what would what would Katya as a young Russian pianist be exposed to what would she be playing. And so what it it didn't evolve as much as expand. And so now the the kinds of music I still love classical music as I always have, but now I have a much bigger um, stable of of composers that I can choose from when I choose to listen to it. Yeah. Yes. I always wanted to write novels, but I didn't think I had the talent for it. And I, you know, I, I think writing nonfiction was a way of writing without committing to a, a full-length novel. And and there was a... I, 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 it's funny enough, I had a dream, and and I'm... You know, always kind of inspired by little coincidences and and funny things that happen. So I had this dream. My son was six months old. I wasn't sleeping, and I dreamed that um, this guide picked me up from a mall and took me to this mansion. And it was you know was a very strange drive. And when we got there. Um, it was set up for a reading kind of like this. And there was a podium and there was a sideboard um, with stacks of books. And this person, whoever he was said in the dream, "Um, come over, I want you to look at, at what's on this table. And it was stacks of books, all of which had been authored by me. And I had this moment of lucid dreaming. Has anybody ever had a lucid dream where you suddenly are able to interact with your dream? And I turned to this character and said do you have a pen I'm going to wake up and I need to write this stuff down because clearly I need to write down the titles it's lucid yeah and so in the dream the the guy turned to me and he said you don't need a pen you don't need to write this down everything that you have everything you need is already inside of you and I woke up and I literally started writing my first novel the next day and I haven't stopped since (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Can you tell us about your character development process? They come to me fully formed. They And they evolve, but they do sort of appear in my mind um, with a lot of questions. Um, they have. I can feel them before I can see them, typically. And that sounds maybe a little bit weird, but I I can kind of sense their their, whatever emotional concerns that they have. And as I start to build the story around those things, their details start to emerge, physical details, backstory. But I really do feel like when I first have the idea for a character, I know that character. And and, and it's like knowing a friend, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, you can assess them in some meaningful way, hopefully. And then as you get to know them more and more, The details emerge, the, the things that make them unique, the things that concern them, that keep them up at night, the things that they really want or think that they want. And that's how it happens in fiction. You know, it's just about paying attention to those imaginary people the same way I would pay attention to someone that I wanted to get to know in real life. Oh well, that's a different question. Bakersfield—that—that that was sort of a construct that had to do with. If you read the novel, you'll—you'll you'll figure out sort of the, the immigration of um, Katya from Leningrad to the United States. A lot of Russians immigrated to Los Angeles, and I knew that I wanted these characters to be close in geographic prox- proximity, and. Because of what happened to Clara as a child, I needed her to move out of Los Angeles, but I didn't want her to go too far away. And so Bakersfield was the perfect blue-collar community for her to grow up in. Yeah. Anybody else?
1: Yes. If you're writing two hours a day, how many yeah. hours is
0: research? Because this is a lot of research. It's a lot of research. Um, you know, I consider research writing. So, you know, there are days when all I do is research and then days that I literally write dialogue and, and you know, narrative prose. So I consider it all part of the same process. And there are days when I can do a little bit more. But I would say that, and they, and they happen concurrently. There's more front-loading of the research, but I can't predict everything that I need to know because I don't plot anything. And so that evolves naturally and as... The story emerges and the characters develop. Then I need to ask different questions, and so I might, you know, pick up the phone and call Helga and ask her a question for a few hours, <laughs> and then go back to writing. <laughs> yes, but it's really fluid. Yes. Have
1: you ever thought of writing detective
0: stories? Yeah. I don't have it in me. I don't think because I mean, one thing that detective authors of detective stories do really well is is to plan it out. And they have to know the begin. They they know the end at the beginning, and my process is to discover the story as I'm writing it. And so I don't think I have it in me to write a detective story. But if I ever do, I'm going to dedicate it to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, so many. I mean, I think I'm inspired by every author I read, whether I. Um, really enjoy that novel or not, and there's so much to admire in other people's work. But the authors that I return to again and again are um, Charlie Baxter uh, or Charles Baxter. He writes under Charles Baxter, Annie Prue, Elizabeth Strout, um, Hodgin, Colin McCann, George Saunders. I mean i I read pretty much exclusively in the genre in which I write. Not because I don't value the other genres, but there's such a limited amount of time. And there are so many great writers that I'm exposed to, that that's where I tend to focus my time. And I always say that my favorite book is the one that I'm currently reading, because I I just can't pick one favorite. Do we have time, Noel, for, where's Noel? One more? OK. <laughs> I I mean, it's just sort of a general fiction, literary fiction. It's kind of the umbrella under which I think a lot of things that don't have a clear um, focus, like detective stories or sci fi, fall. It's more of a broad, general category. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Thank you again to Sergey and to Helga for being here. So important and meaningful. Thank you.